Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, a nonprofit organization, partnering with people in communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships. On the web at maincf.org. It's 9.58, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. If we're going to make Maine the way life should be, we're probably going to have to tinker a little bit with the marketplace. Take Maine farmers, for instance. They used to feed and clothe the state and export far and wide. Nowadays, consumers and farmers sometimes have a hard time linking up because we're so used to the convenience of going to the supermarket and having it all right there, even if it's been halfway around the world. So today, we're going to talk about some other ways in which consumers and producers can get connected. We have some guests in the studio who can help us with our topic, and I've, I've called it Agriculture Setting the Table of Maine's Creative Economy. John Harker is with the Maine Department of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Resources. Welcome to you, John. Yeah, good morning, Ron. Carrie Sands is with Farms for Maine's Future. Thank you. Good morning. And um, we have also in the studio Nanny Kennedy of Sea Colors in Washington, Maine. Welcome to you, Nanny. Hi, Ron. Later on, we'll talk with Beth Calder, who's a food science specialist um, at the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, one of my colleagues. Um, let's get started w- with uh, some uh, conversations with John, because um, you recently delivered a report or, or um, uh, discussed a report that you've been working on for a year or so on Maine's creative agricultural economy. Where were the origins of that report, John? Well, actually, um, Marge Kilkelly, who works for the uh, Council of State Governments, and Wendy Pay got together last year, and they put in a resolve to study uh, Maine's creative agricultural economy. Uh, Marge has been in uh, agriculture for a long time, Mm -hmm. starting to get frustrated with the lack of government services and the ability of us to respond. And and no one has really done a really good detailed study of that. So uh, they asked the department to uh, do this study this year, and uh, that's uh, why I'm here. Mm. Now, I know that um, Maine's creative economy has gotten um, um, a lot of billing in the last several years, and I guess that could mean um, using people's ideas to do something different um, in Maine. And that might come from the arts, or it may come from... um, entrepreneurs or downtown redevelopment, those kinds of things. That's been the creative economy that I'm familiar with. Tell me about the the agricultural creative economy. Well, the ag uh, economy can be anybody from uh, farmers doing farmers markets, uh, farm stands. Uh, What uh, Wendy and Marge wanted me to focus on were farmers who direct market their products to the consumers, whatever they may be. So we've got the fruits and vegetables, greenhouses, nurseries, but you also have, uh, as nannies here, fiber producers. Uh, You have people do food processing and sell directly to the consumer. Uh, You also have the farmers who are doing what they call now agritourism, which is, uh, you know, the farm experience. Uh, Some people call it experiential tourism. Uh, but that's getting a lot of play now, and that's where the farmers can interact uh, directly with the consumer. So I looked at all of those um, sectors for agriculture. So that seems to me that we're coming, uh, hopefully, full cycle. That's probably the way agricultural and production and creation of food and fiber used to happen um, when people were directly relating to the people who produce things. Where did we go wrong? <laughs> what's, what's, um, what's gotten in the way of that kind of connection? Um, and, and why are people like Marge and, and others so concerned? 
Well, I don't know about that one. <laughs> Anybody. <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, uh, let's look at the consumer. Hmm. I, uh, what I did was I took uh, a different tact. I said, you know, we know what the farmer's issues are, and, and I've got those listed in this report. But we really have to go back and look at the marketplace. We have to look at the consumer. What's the consumer telling us? So uh, I looked at a number of the University of Maine research reports. Uh, I interviewed uh, consumers. We did a consumer focus group uh, in Bangor this past uh, fall. We really wanted to find out what their issues are. And clearly the consumer today is not the same one as yesterday. They want convenience. Uh, they want um, healthy food. They want safe food. Uh, they want easy access to their food. And now we're getting a consumer who is, is um, more and more, like you and I, you know, we get into our 50s. We're more and more interested in health and nutrition. So uh, the farmers have to change their mindset and look at this consumer and say, okay, well, how are we going to meet those consumer needs of today? Um, so that's part of what the consumer uh, issue is. Then we have the younger consumers who uh, young mothers with children, they don't have any time, they're working two jobs. Uh, we also have uh, the consumer who has some uh, expendable money and they want to buy some high-quality products and they want to look local. So, um, you know, this is creating actually a really good opportunity for Maine farmers today. And I, I guess my thought is that um, maybe this is in reaction to the rest of the marketplace, which is delivering food from halfway across the world or products from halfway across the world that don't have any connection locally. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's sure convenient when you go into the supermarket and you can get mm -hmm. almost anything you want. Yeah, Ron, I want to speak to your question, yes. your original question, which pertained to, you know, how did this happen? Where did we get mm -hmm. derailed? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is Nanny speaking. Um, and most, what I don't think, I don't know how many consumers realize that most of the dollar that they're spending on food really uh, is going towards processing and distribution. So clearly in that um – in 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 the grocery world, it was a whole lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. The economies of scale and size were both um, were were both existing in uh, in a in a in a venue that didn't necessarily cater to to local processors, especially local processors in, in Maine who are who are operating at a scale of production that um, can't really take advantage of economies of size or scale. Mm. Those are so. Those those are some of the challenges that we're we're trying to um, to meet in order to address the the consumer demand um, in ways that get our scale of production mm. um, onto that table and in a way that uh, returns those processing and distribution dollars back in the in the in the producer's pocket mm -hmm. more directly. So rather than going through that big loop, mm -hmm. you're saying, is there an interchange that can happen directly between consumers and producers? And it's a little bit like reverse osmosis. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not an easy way to mm -hmm. look at the distribution stream. Mm -hmm. um, uh, fortunately, we now have a, a set of, I think, um, economic um, variables such as the, the cost of, of gasoline that's, that has consumers looking differently um, to how they want to do their shopping and how they want to see their world around them um, evolve. Mm. Yeah, and there's another thing, too. Um, we talk about value-added products like you know, food processed products or like you, what you do, Nanny, with the uh, value-added wool and wool products. But there's another value-added product that the consumer is looking for now, and that's the connection, the direct connection with the farmer. And we don't think about that as value-added, but the, from the consumer's point of view, it is. They are looking for the connection. They're looking for getting back to their heritage. Um, they want to have a nice experience. And farmers who can provide that through their farm stand or their farmer's market where they can meet honest, friendly, upfront people that have good food and good products for them, that's what the consumer is looking for, and mm. that's value added mm. from their standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, as you did your study, um, were there some um, uh, good examples that you found that you know you, you can say, well, you know, let's let's look at this model. Um, you've mentioned farmers markets as is one way mm -hmm. to yep. talk about what you found as you looked at farmers markets. Right. Well, definitely, if you look uh, at the Bar Harbor market, is a perfect example where the farmers can get right there. Uh, meet the consumer's convenience need, uh, go after the consumer that has the uh, slightly higher income uh, available to them. Uh, farmers markets in the right market is, uh, is one good approach. I think farmers who are going after the Internet and Internet sales, uh, that's another good approach. Um, and uh, one that I'm really interested in looking at more 
and we started to get consumers interested in this that we talked to are our food buying clubs getting back to that old model mm-hmm. it's an old model but it's a new one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and where you can the farmer can actually inter- interact with a group of consumers we're doing it with CSAs but that's where the consumer actually comes out to the farm or in this case some farmers that are doing CSAs actually bring in uh, their food to a distribution point any place where you can meet the consumers convenience needs and I think a consumer food buying clubs are going to come uh, about more and more. Mm, mm. And then the, the, the notion of, of using the Internet, um, you're seeing examples of people getting um, uh, pr- products uh, bought and sold through that process. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and if you can get on the Internet today, you have the world as your market for some products, you know, the United States for others, mm-hmm. but you're bringing wealth into the state of Maine. Anytime mm-hmm. you do a sale out of state and bring mm-hmm. that money in, mm-hmm. you're creating wealth for the state of Maine and for your local community. Mm-hmm. Which is opposite what happens when you're talking about commodity kinds of agriculture. Generally, <laughs> the money is, is uh, kind of, you know, it's coming to Maine, but a lot of it, it's leading because, because it goes then to the, the processing and the packaging kinds of things. Right. Yeah. With, with the Internet, you've got to access um, market power. So you have to know wh- what the Internet can do, to, do for you. You've got, you can't just put up your own little website and figure people are going to come there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you either have to partner with people who have marketing power on the Internet or uh, you need to um, uh, create connections with folks that uh, have you know, networks mm-hmm. where people want your products. Mm-hmm. So you presented this to um, um, a, a committee? Um, in the in the yeah. legislature, yeah. What were some of the questions that that you were asked, and what will happen to this as as it goes forward? Well, um, th- we proposed ten different initiatives in this report that we hope that the legislature will look at. I mean, farmers uh, can do their own work uh, to create their own markets and so forth. There is a role for government to play in some cases. Um, one way, uh, one of those initiatives is to encourage the University of Maine. Uh, especially the food and nutrition area, to um, bolster their um, uh, their programs, uh, to do business planning. And, cre- and you have Carrie here. She's going to talk about that. But definitely farmers want and need more business planning assistance so that they know the economics of what they're doing. And uh, setting up shared-use kitchens. I know there's an uh, opportunity down here in Bucksport so that food processors can have access to better equipment so they can test new products. So, again, they can look at the full 10 initiatives, but those are just some of them mm. uh, to try. And and hopefully the uh, legislature this session will look at it. They'll also set up their own study committee this coming year to look at those recommendations and see if there's more things they can do. Right. One other initiative is labor. Mm-hmm. Labor is a big issue on farms. Okay, so what would what would that look like, that particular one? What would the, the labor initiative look like? Uh, perhaps getting more money for apprenticeship programs, uh, for uh, accessing, trying to access more help, um, migrant labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of farmers could use more migrant labor, and if we somehow work with the federal government to come up with better mechanisms to access that labor, mm-hmm. And management labor, uh, doing more training, mm-hmm. uh, university training, so forth, to help mm-hmm. with management. Mm-hmm. Great. Could I add something on that? Yes, please. This Carrie. is Carrie. Um, and I think one of the, the suggestions um, on the labor topic was to utilize the existing career centers mm-hmm. to, to help farmers um, look for employees and, and even screen them. Um, so it sort of adds efficiency at all levels uh, rather than rather than wasting time sort of meeting with someone who wasn't going to show up or didn't even have the right qualifications or set of interests to begin with. The career center can sort of take that burden off the farmer if it works for both parties. Mm-hmm. But it's an idea that, that's a little bit underutilized at the moment, and I think this initiative would – would seek to make those connections, mm-hmm. utilize what we already have going. Mm-hmm. We're going to come back to John in a minute because not only is he working for the Department of um, Agriculture, Food, and Rural Resources, but he's also a producer as well. So we'll come back for that story in just a minute. Um, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking with uh, John Harker, um, Carrie Sands of Farms for Maine's Future, and also in the studio with us is Nanny Kennedy of Sea Colors in Washington, Maine. Um, turning to Carrie, um, tell us a little bit about your background in farms for Maine's Future and its connections with uh, CEI. Sure. Um, Farms for the Future is a state of Maine 
Department of Agriculture program. We do business planning and grants for existing Maine farmers who are looking to go through some kind of transition towards economic viability. Um, it's been around for about seven years. I'm employed by Coastal Enterprises, Inc., CEI, which is a nonprofit organization, and despite our name, we actually do work statewide. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a collaborative effort between the nonprofit and the Department of Agriculture. I work very closely with John to administer the program. And um, every fall, we solicit applications from farmers for a phase of business planning where we will assign a team of advisors to each farm. And and each farm sort of has a a set of questions that they want to work through. Um, Can I change from dairy to beef or vice versa? Um, Should I rent land or should I buy land? Should I extend my season or should I shift my product entirely? And then how am I going to accomplish those changes? What do I have to spend in order to accomplish those changes? And what's it going to do for me in the short term and the long term? And, of course, you can take those questions in a million different directions that have to do with finance, um, assets, family goals, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think a lot of folks who are producing have a lot of really good ideas, and we can help them think through those ideas um, in a variety of ways. One way is simply to add structure to the process where you're kind of meeting with a small group on a regular basis. So there's going to be questions asked and you have to think about it and sort of have your homework done and um, have your answers ready. Another might be that we could um, cover the cost of a special technical consultant to come in and say, here's what's going on with your soil or here's what's going on with a market opportunity or compare greenhouse A to greenhouse B. Um, and really help the farmer sort of add numbers to their ideas. Um, And most folks in the program are interested in the second part of the program, which is a cost-share grant um, to sort of implement the changes that are in the business plan, and that's a competitive process that's available once the business plan is complete. Mm. So it sounds like the, the ideas that people have are kind of wandering around in the back of their heads. Mm-hmm. They're the kind of things that you might wake up and think about in the middle of the night or when you're on the back of the tractor. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that this gives some structure to, to how we might get an answer to some of those questions yep. and concerns. Structure. And, and it also, I think, gives some support. This is Nanny. Mm. <clears throat> gives some support to the fact that um, if you were listening to what Carrie said, she was talking about issues of soil fertility. She was talking about issues of climate you know, control and how much we can control our, our, our growing season, um, uh, issues of capitalizing which equipment. Um, there's so many learning curves mm-hmm. to presenting a product, a, a quality product to the marketplace. Not every farmer should be expected, and certainly not a startup farmer should be expected to have a full grasp on all of those learning curves, which is where the ancient model of, mm. you know, <laughs> 50 right. or 80 years ago right. um you had you had um many you had you had several generations living on right. the same farm for instance yes. and you also had several family members who you know could could pick up the slack in different aspects of the household production function that doesn't exist anymore we're we're dealing with a whole different i think cultural relevance to the way that we do our production systems and and <clears throat> we have to respond to the market um with a very high quality product, uh, as as well as um, as well as the marketing um, the marketing component of that, are, there's also a huge set of costs. If you're going to um, do a, an internet you know process, mm. you, you can't assume that someone who knows who knows their growing season well and their soil well and their and their animal genetics well that they also have a, a skill set around. Uh, um, you know, around computers, mm. exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and they also have to be able to keep a, a decent vehicle on the on the on on the road if they're going to be doing farmers markets. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a whole bunch of consumer expectations about product delivery that have been established at this point by our corporate um, Hannafords or Shaws or or even the local uh, mom and pop. A health food store that I think establishes a, a standard for 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 producers to need to um, you know rise to, and um, there's a whole bunch of costs associated mm. with that that now the 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 producer needs to you know to assume in some capacity, or 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 else the consumer is going to have to be willing to come a little bit closer to to what the producer can do for them, and just you know be mm. happier with what they get. Carrie, I know that you can't um, generalize totally, but where do um 
um, budding farmers start out? They, do they start out with a passion for growing things or, or and then realize they have to do all of these other things as well? Or do others come at it because they have, you know, this is a business model that they're interested in? Are both those mixes in the group of folks that you work with? I think so. That's a really good question. I'm seeing, I'm seeing more people in the program or people that I interact with in general um, who have some degree of savvy already about business planning and marketing, at least an awareness that, that they need to undertake this process and learn more. Um, again, I don't want to pigeonhole or mm. overgeneralize, but I think you find that more with folks who were not raised on a farm necessarily. Um, and again, I don't want to pigeonhole or generalize, but in my experience, I see people who, who have made a conscious decision to come to farming at some point in their adult lives. And they, they are, they're kind of asking these questions because I think they've already thought about farming as a business versus another type of business. Having said that, I think that people who did grow up on farms also have an incredible amount of knowledge um, they just may have never written a business plan, mm-hmm. or they may have never written a business plan in order to explore a new market. They may have needed to write a business plan to go to a bank and get a loan, or to sort of think through a decision. But um, it's just a different—it's a very different process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you grow up on a farm, you look at decisions a little bit differently than if you sort of choose to to enter. But again, way overgeneralizing here. Mm. So. Well, tell a story about somebody that um, has used that process and made a shift in, in what they've been doing and what they're doing in, into the future. Tell a story from, from your experience. There's a lot of examples. Mm-hmm. I mean, we work, we work statewide. We've worked in every county. We've worked with potato folks, blueberry folks, dairy folks, apple folks. Um, I think a lot of the, the really interesting stories on, on this topic of sort of value-added and, and processing are folks who are looking at their product mix and and they're almost thinking too far ahead in terms of needing to get too gourmet or too specialized too fast. Mm. Um, For example, a a pork producer might think that they need to um, get right to the very top of the market and do something that's drastically wildly different immediately when actually they have an opportunity to just continue selling their awesome bacon and sausage and awesome other pork products to to a wider group of consumers than they already are. I mean, you can sort of take take a pig and cut it up a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know... Literally and figuratively. Literally and fig- figuratively. And, um, and so the business planning process helps you actually sort of attach numbers to all the parts of that pig and where the markets are, and mm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. On the other hand, um, a cheese producer, I think... Um, might need to set their sights on some of those higher and higher uh, gourmet sort of products a little bit sooner because the cheese, the, the sort of cheese sector is in a different place than the meat sector in Maine. And people, excuse me, who use cheese or use meat, they, they use cheese and use meat in different ways. Mm. So that's part of what John was getting at earlier, Nanny earlier too, about really... Um, listening to your consumer and what their needs are. Um, you know, there's cheese has a long um, sort of product development cycle. You, you're not going to be, um, you know, perfect at it right away. And it, you sort of need to let it age for a long time. So you need to think about what your long-term goal is and how you're going to kind of get from, from A to B. So those are some stories of, you know, mm. folks who've made a – made a decision that might be a little bit different than what they thought they were going to do when they started out. Right. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning, where the topic is um, agriculture, setting the table of Maine's creative economy. In the studio with us are Carrie Sands, who you've just heard from, from Farms for Maine's Future. John Harker is with with us from the Maine Department of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Resources, and Nanny Kennedy of Sea Colors in Washington, Maine. You can participate as well. If you've got questions for us, give us a call at one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. One of the areas, John, that that um, you've recognized um, where producers need help is is actually in kind of the ad- adding value to food. And so our next guest is going to talk about that. But what did you find as you did your study? What were some of the barriers that you felt um, people had as they thought about producing new food products? 
Well, I think one of the biggest ones is uh, access to capital and for ramp-up. Mm. I mean, uh, the university can help them develop a nice new food product, and the Maine Technology Institute can come in and help them um, do some research and get a little bit of grants to do some research on food product. But when they go from that stage and the mom and pa, you know, out the kitchen door to uh, being a larger food processor that can get into the wholesale market, um, there's a gap there mm. of the need for patient capital. So that's one of the major areas. Patient capital. What I call patient capital. What's that mean? Well, that means uh, you give them a loan, and instill, instead of having them pay it back in five years, you give them 10 years. Mm. Um, mm. Instead of asking for a 25% return on investment, some investor, you know, maybe you only ask for a 7 or 8% return on investment. Because so, this is new and needs to be developed. Right. I mean, any good business uh, is going to take 10 to 14 years. Like Carrie's saying, the business planning process is a good process because it makes people look out 10 to 14 years. You know, you're not going to make money in three or four. Mm. You know, you're going to have a lot of capital expenses, and you've got to look out 14 years. Mm. So access to capital is one of the biggest uh, issues mm. that they well, identify. Well, let's get our next guest um, av- available to us by phone. Beth Calder is with the Food Science uh, Department at the University of Maine. Um, welcome to you, Beth. Welcome to Talk of the Towns. Well, thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me on. And hello to the other members there the booth with you today. Great. Well, um, you uh, help um, a variety of people um, get to that stage where they might have developed a new food product. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background, your work, and and how you work with uh, producers. Well, uh, a little bit about my background. I do have an agricultural background. I grew up on a dairy farm in Skowhegan, Maine, so I understand uh, where farmers are coming from here in Maine. Um, And a little bit more about my background is uh, I have a nutrition background and also a food science background. And uh, what I'm doing at the University of Maine, I have a split appointment with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension, and I also conduct research at the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. So it's a nice combination of outreach, uh, working with folks out there in the community, in the food industry, um, and also helping assist them with applied research projects, too. So give us some examples of something that you've been working on um, with a, a potential uh, producer adding value to their agricultural product. Oh, a couple of folks that I that come right to mind um, as you're mentioning this uh, is Highland Blueberry Farms right in Stockton Springs. They've worked with uh, our department. Uh, one of our graduate students was looking for a project. She was part of the National Science Foundation Teaching Fellowship, and she was looking at uh, possibly working with a farmer and a project, and it turned out to be a wonderful experience. This person also, this Highland Blueberry Farm, had gone to MTI, had gotten three seed grants, and they wanted to take a look into some anthocyanin testing and and see where the health uh, benefits might possibly be with blueberries and also the leaves themselves, and they've developed organic whole plant wild Maine blueberry tea. So I've been a part of this, helping them through their process, as well as the Advanced Manufacturing Center at the University of Maine, uh, along with the assistance of Tom Christensen. And and so is that product available um, at this point, or is it still in development? It is available, and they have a website as well. Great. So, again, list the name of the, the company. People can find the, 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 them on the website, but go ahead and list the name of the company again. It's Highland Blueberry Farm. And that's in Stockton Springs. Stockton Springs. Great. Any other stories that you'd like to tell? Uh, Jim Piccarello, he's not a farmer, but he is a, an entrepreneur through and through, and he came to us with a uh, wonderful idea, and uh, that was a frozen teapot or popsicle. And uh, through MTI, again, the seed grant assistance, he also was awarded three seed grants, and uh, he developed what he calls Frost Teas and Frost Bites. And he has started out just kind of, he started out at first talking to folks at the Common Ground Fair, and he had a little booth there. And uh, he just took off with his product, went to some of the cooperatives in Maine, got his product in there, and now he's in Whole Foods all along the East Coast. So he's done very well. So he started out with an idea as an entrepreneur, but recognized his need to do some product testing and and that market research. Right, and we did do some research work on just seeing where the texture was at with his tea pop um, and to see if he needed to improve it or do we 
you needed to change any of the ingredients. Uh, so that was very beneficial for him. Great. Uh, a third story, you've got any, anybody else that you'd like to talk about? Uh, let's see, there's a few other folks, but I think those two are probably the best. Great. Well, um, wh- do you see some trends um, in all of this? Do you see some trends that people who might be listening today might say, oh, that's something I'm interested in? Uh, let's see, there there are all sorts of different opportunities. Uh, I just encourage folks to, to come and, and talk to us. Uh, we just offer a variety of resources, whether it's staff. It's, we've also got facilities that folks may not know about. We have uh, a pilot plant which contains small-scale food processing equipment and that's available to farmers, entrepreneurs, and also staff and students at the University of Maine. We also have a consumer testing center, so if folks want to do some sensory testing or a taste test, that's available as well. And uh, we also have a commercial-scale kitchen that could be used as well if folks wanted to work with us on developing a prototype. Great. And how, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, by email or by phone. Do you want me to go ahead and yes, go ahead. both of those out? Okay. Yes. Uh, telephone number to contact myself would be 581-2791 or via email. B. Calder, C-A-L-D-E-R, at U-M-E-X-T dot main, M-A-I-N-E dot E-D-U. Great. And again, if they probably um, go just to the university website or to Cooperative Extension's website, they'd be able to kind of find, find you there as well. Right. It's the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition at the University of Maine. Great. Well, thanks for being with us, Beth, and maybe we'll talk with you again on okay. Talk of the Towns. All right. Beth, Thank you. Sure. Before Beth, Beth leaves, can yes. I ask Beth a question? Beth, you're sure still, there? Are you still there? Nanny? Um, yeah. Hi, Beth. I'm, I'm curious about the teas that the tea fella um, is doing, the frozen pops and uh-huh. the frozen tea. Um, what are, are there some farm products that are actually being, um, that are involved in that processing? I'm trying to think. I know that Jim has been very, uh, uh, proactive about trying to get all main ingredients for his teas. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the teas, I don't think he's been able to find any local teas that are, uh, he's looking for large quantities, and I don't think he's been able to find that niche. So he's always looking to, to look for local ingredients if you have any suggestions, but he's also purchasing organic honey, mm-hmm. I think, locally produced mm-hmm. in Maine. Yeah, I just, that speaks perfectly to the, the point that I was making earlier um, um, about the fact that it's um, a, still a commodities um, sort of venue that, um, f- well, first of all, that most of the consumer dollars um, and even, even consumers, conscientious consumers who believe that they're buying local um, may not actually be um, you know, sourcing their product locally just because the processing and distribution happened locally. And that's where a lot of confusion comes in around I think, the Buy Local campaign. Mm. And um, it sounds like a fabulous product. I am not in any way suggesting that um, we shouldn't all go out and support Jim. Sounds fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Um, <laughs> but it just speaks, I think, um, eloquently to the, to, the, to the problem that you, you asked, mm. Ron. You know, how did we, how did we end up here? Mm-hmm, right. And that's how. Right. And, and the fact that we're going to see um, both entrepreneurs come at it and then use main products. And we're going to see producers coming at it and need to use those opportunities. Skills. So mm-hmm. both of those things are part of the market that John mm-hmm. um, alludes to in terms of who's buying these mm-hmm. days and what are they interested in doing. So that's great. So thanks again, Beth, for being with us. You're welcome. And we also provide other services. We offer a variety of food testing and also workshops and education. And one workshop that's coming up in Somerset County, just want to mention, is on how to start especially food business for folks that might be interested. Great. So um, the Somerset County Extension Office would be the place to get in touch there. Yes. Good. Thanks again, Beth. Yes, thank you. I'll stay on the line in case any other questions come up. Oh well, we, we we could do that for a while, but then um, it begins to limit our, our the the folks listening. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Beth. Thank you. I will list our phone numbers: one eight six six. or locally 469-0500 as we talk about agriculture setting the table of Maine's creative economy. Nanny, let's um, get a little bit of background on yourself and and how, what was the progression that you kind of went through as a a producer moving into um, more of the value-added piece that your uh, Sea Colors provides now? Sure. Um, Well, I I really wanted to be a lion tamer, but I didn't see any ads in the newspaper. You'd be good at that. (laughs) Wicked good at that. Um, I I always had sort of an affinity with animals. 
um, it became very clear to me. I also grew up on a piece of land uh, that had been a sheep farm um, when my dad was a kid and, and prior to that. And um, so I was aware of, you know, how the land and, and, um, and the people had been. Um, and I was particularly drawn to sheep because they're multi-commodity. There's fiber, there's meat, and there's dairy. So in terms of an uh, efficient investment, it seemed like, you know, one, um, you know, investment that could yield a multitude of products was that made economic sense to me. Um, I started out, I think, when I, well, excuse me, I, I, I also was able, had the very good fortune to have hitched across the Pacific Ocean to learn about fiber genetics and uh, grassland management, um, which to me, Maine seemed to have a very good fit, particularly with fiber, because of the fact that we had this sort of rich cultural heritage around um, handcraft and around weaving. Um, um, and when we had these long winters with nothing else to do, um, and um, uh, and I knew that we could grow grass for seven months out of the year. So I wanted to go to a country where I could really learn um, from, from people who were, you know, living and breathing it, you know, every day. So I... And what, what place was that? Oh, I'm sorry. I went to New Zealand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was extremely fortunate to have been taken um, taken on by a family who... Um, yeah, they were so generous to me. She had started the New Zealand Black and Colored Sheep Society, uh, and and had her and had her small fiber flock, and was a hand spinner and a dyer. Um, and he had a um, um, uh, he had a had a commercial flock of Romneys. There was eight thousand. Then, of course, after lambing, we had more like sixteen to twenty thousand animals on the ground. So I was pretty well immersed in it uh, on a daily basis, um, and you know brought that back back to um, to Maine uh, or to New England, worked for a while for the Forbes family down on an island off of uh, Woods Hole, um, where it had been, actually it was the longest standing uh, farm in uh, the country. It was a, it was a pre-revolutionary farm and still is a, a, a wonderful place. Um, and also another woman here in Maine um, that I uh, was fortunate to have been mentored by who had 300 and some animals that were Scottish blackface. So they were really a carpet fiber. In the world of sheep, there's meat breeds and fiber breeds. Um, as well as dairy breeds. And in the world of fiber breeds, there's carpet breeds and apparel breeds. So there's any number of different, different avenues that you can um, you know, choose to specialize. Um, originally, the business planning that was available to me back here in Maine through Cooperative Extension and through um, department and, and other educational entities um, specifically was around the meat model. But it didn't take long for me to figure out that the meat model that was being promoted was really genetics that had been well-developed for um, the show ring. Unfortunately, the show ring um, was a big, fancy, beautiful, long-legged um, <laughs> animal that was uh, not necessarily economic to raise. The economics were actually being driven by show premiums. Um, so I wanted to create a genetics that I thought was a better fit for our uh, production economics um, and also our what I saw to be or what I believed could be our our market economics. Um, at the time, of course, everyone was getting all excited about polar fleece blankets um, you know, coming in from all over, so so it was still a little bit of a of a of a wish thinking. I think um, I th we're seeing that change now. Um, I, I I know. So that's part that of the market that John was talking about. People are asking the question about what do they want on their bodies. I think that's mm -hmm. right. Um, mm -hmm. I think that people have made the connection that actually polar fleece in the marketplace is a virgin petroleum product. It's not recycled materials. Um, and, and even when it is recycled, it's only recycled at about 25% of, of, the, of the input. It's just not economic to use at this point um, recycled materials. Um, and uh, increasingly with the value of, um, with the value of uh, petroleum uh, and the shadow value of corn products uh, as a feed and so forth, um, the fiber is um, is becoming competitive with that with that mm. synthetic in some way, not to mention the fact that wool is non flammable so you don 't have to have all the chemical processing it is a it 's a, a protein chain a keratin chain which doesn 't support combustion so um, in a green in a green household where you want to make sure that you survive the night if you had a house fire or um, survive um, a plane crash you know you, you really don 't want to be you don 't want your uh, your fabrics um, melting on your body or asphyxiating you along the way. So, uh, that's so that's, know, that's you know. a good thing. Good to that's know. Right. Green living through wool. Right. Um, not that's to mention the fact that there are, you know, fabulous grazers, um, 
you know, they, they harvest their own feed. They um, fertilize as they go. They um, raise a completely renewable product on their backside, which for most farmers is actually a byproduct of the meat. Um, and, of course, when you're wearing wool, um, you are actually conserving your own body heat, so you don't, you don't have as much need for outside sources of, of uh, petroleum or other heat sources. So to me, for my intellectual fit, what mattered to me, I think, in the world, it was a, it was a, it was a perfect mm. fit. You know? So how do you, how do you um, take uh, – tell us about mm-hmm. your product and mm-hmm. how do you get it to consumers? Because oh, you, yeah. you don't go and, and, and market through Rennie's, for instance. No, I don't. Okay. Um, I um, – though I – do love Bob Rennie and have a lot mm-hmm. of respect for what mm-hmm. he's been able to mm-hmm. do. Um, anyway, um, I I, uh, I I share my my product usually in the spring, um, and and this speaks to patient capital too. Actually, John and I appreciate that. I I, I love that term. Um, we we share the animals in the spring, and at this point, they've spent a whole year growing that wool already. So think about all of the risks that already went into just getting to a, a raw material product of you know coyotes and weather and barns and everything else that's needed to keep those animals safe, dry, and happy. Um, we shear it, and then at that point, it needs to get scoured, and it needs to get spun, and um, it, whether or not um, I choose to, to dye it, uh, it that's, the, that's the point at which I, I, just, I dye it. Um, and then I have, um, I, I design very simple garments, um, and then uh, there are a bunch of either knitters around um, around rural parts of the state that, um, that do some piecework um, for me, or there, or or it goes into a woven product. Um, now, depending upon whether or not that product's going to be a, a two ply worsted for a garment um, versus um, a single ply for a woven product, it may be um, spun, maybe processed at a different a different facility. But at this point, I'm happy to say that um, all of the finished production is happening in in, in New England. It's been a difficult uh, challenge to put together a production chain in in a in a sector of our economy, which um, most of our uh, textile um, has gone overseas. So we've lost that capacity in we many sh- cases. We sure have. Right. Um, right. That's right. And again, the, the, the notion um, I heard you tell before we came on the air that you were in a meeting talking about some important stuff, mm-hmm. but you were also selling because your computer was with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, my computer is at my side, and I mm-hmm. was saying to Carrie earlier, we were in a, we were meet- in a meeting. Was that yesterday? It was Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> Wednesday afternoon, and my computer dinged, and sure enough, there was a you know $325 order that came in, and this... You know, I mean, the computer never sleeps. It's mm. Is that off the web? That was off the web, yeah. Mm. yeah. And so now that, that so was web selling. Yeah, I am web selling. The other, the other piece of, um, I should explain to you my evolution of having chosen to steer a little bit farther away from um, raising a, a fat lamb. Um, the only way to make the economics of that work is, um, and again, that's the patient capital issue um, at the time, was um, to basically raise a pig with wool that you could get to um, get to market weight in you know 120 days or fewer and first of all uh, an animal that was raised on corn didn't really make I didn't think didn't make um, sense to me in my in my personal consumption habits secondly it didn't seem like it was a very good fit for our environment and um, thirdly it really wasn't economic anymore so I've focused more on the grass-fed I'm consistently on on the grass-fed technology so not only can I raise a smaller slower growing animal that grazes well it moves around the hills well I can rotate it properly so that I actually am increasing the benefit of the humus in my soils and um, a better stand of grass, healthier animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which, I, which results in a healthier um, meat product. But I have the opportunity after 10 months to um, shear, that, um, shear that fiber crop off of the animal. So I am getting both, mm-hmm. both crops, mm-hmm. which is critical, and then letting it grow out enough so that if I do choose to um, uh, send it off to a terminal marketplace, if you will. <laughs> chop its head off and put it into the mini cuts of <laughs> lamb that, that Carrie was referring to in, mm-hmm. in terms of the pig, that, um, that uh, I, I also have the, the sheep skin, which right. is, is another value-added mm-hmm. product. So I try to add, you know, be able to capture value at, at every stage of the game that I can, both um, with the production as, as well as the manufacturing and, and the processing yeah, so it's it's turned out to be a yeah production process that really works. Great, we'll come back in just a minute. I'll list our phone numbers one more time: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. As we talk about agriculture, setting the table of Maine's creative economy here on WERU, we do have a phone call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Are you still there? 
Uh, yes, I am. Go ahead. My name is uh, Christopher Ha. I work out of the Ellsworth Career Center with a program that serves uh, farm workers, the job training program. And I'm calling in regard to uh, earlier in the show, I didn't actually hear it, but someone else told me that earlier in the show there was mention about the Ellsworth Career Center um, and job training opportunities for farmers. I'm and, not sure if we mentioned that specifically, so go ahead and tell us a little oh, bit about I what see. you're doing. Okay, well, what I wanted to just clarify is that the Ellsworth Career Center will be closing um, as of on June 30th, um, by June 30th. And so I just wanted to make uh, listeners aware of that. There will be career centers available uh, that will be open in Machias and Bangor but uh, the Ellsworth one will be closed. And, and that's, so, due, that's due to budget cuts, I assume? It is, yes. Some of the trends uh, in state government that have to do with consolidation and uh, saving funds. And so, unfortunately, yeah, that service will uh, be closed in Ellsworth. But I, uh, we, there will be job training of opportunities for people in Hancock County and in these areas um, even though the Career Center won't be here. So uh, people will be able to contact some of the existing ones uh, in Machias or Bangor to learn about um, what opportunities they could uh, might be available to them for job training. Well, great. Uh, it, yeah, and I just wanted to mention, uh, I, work with, I personally work with a program that helps people um, who've done farm work uh, receive job training assistance in order to go to some other type of uh, work or stay within agriculture, and um, I can leave, I can give out the Ellsworth Career Center phone number if farmers are interested in having some of their um, workers trained. Um, again, my name is Chris Ha, and my number is 664-2327, and the program that I work with is called the Farm Worker Jobs Program. Great. And so... Yeah, I just wanted to let people know that that's available. Great. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Okay, you're welcome. Thank Good. you. one 625 or locally 469-0500. As we talk about Maine's creative agricultural economy and some of the opportunities that are being explored and, and in fact, um, used to um, bring people income and, and uh, a livelihood. Um, in the studio with us are John Harker of the Maine Department of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Resources, Carrie Sands of Farms for Maine's Future, and Nanny Kennedy of Sea Colors in Washington, Maine. Um, Nanny, you use um, a dyeing process that may be of interest to um, listeners. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. <clears throat> sure, um, Ron. Thanks. I get to give myself a, a real plug here. Um, I uh, am uh, am from Maine, so I, I'm aware of all the things that I find to be incredibly um precious about Maine and, and special that we can do here that no one else can do um, in other places. And that would include um, sort of um, capturing ways, uh, finding ways to capture our, our summer time. Um, I developed this, this dye process, which is um, based in seawater, uh, in order to fix uh, an aniline dye and a protein fiber we talked about that keratin chain, and in order to actually get um, a color to bond to create a catalytic event with um, with with the color uh, and protein, you need to have salt, you need to have acid, and you need to have heat. So instead of using <clears throat> chemical salts or chemical acids or uh, petroleum derived heat or or or, or other you know. Um, synthetic sources of heat. I use um, seawater, I use vinegar, apple vinegar, and I use um, a solar dye process. So it's as low impact as I possibly can make it, and then I uh, reuse the vats um, as the, uh, an, an exhaust vat becomes the basis for the next vat of color, and I add more colors, and I blend the colors right in, in the vats. Mm. And they're, they're done in small vats, um, um, but I can... Um, but I can turn them over pretty quickly. I don't have to be, you know, breathing, um, um, you know, any kind of chemical bath in, mm -hmm. in, in an enclosed area. I do it all outside. Uh, and then um, I rinse, you know, rinse, rinse, rinse. And right now I'm working on uh, developing hopefully a way of settling out that um, 
the, the dye material and then chelating any of the heavy metals that may or may not be left over and distributing them um, to my to my forages uh, to increase my forage yield. So right. it'll continue to be an enclosed right. system. Closed system. That's amazing. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. We do have another phone call. I'll list our numbers just one more time. one 625 or 469-0500 here on Talk of the Towns. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, I have a comment. Uh, I've uh, been running a 50-head sheep operation, a grassland farm in Garland for 35 years. Uh, my wife and I grew up in the Midwest around farming and uh, came to Maine to specifically, uh, I guess, be part of the back-to-the-land movement. But uh, uh, our success, or at least our sustainability, has been able in, in uh, being able to diversify ourselves. And uh, the knowledge uh, really was learned from uh, local people. I, I, well, I paid attention to uh, Department of Agriculture and uh, other organizations, I have to say that um, probably MOFCA and um, Unity College are probably the best uh, sources for information. Uh, I, I'm always kind of amazed how the uh, high school technical centers and the uh, community colleges don't have anything in the way of uh, agricultural, uh, uh, I guess, uh, education. Um, I. I came into this wanting to farm, and I, um, while I had to pay attention a little bit to marketing, I haven't advertised for uh, about six years now. And um, I don't go to farmer's markets, but we not only do we sell uh, about 70 lambs a year uh, to some niche markets, but a lot of just local people that are looking for that product uh, it is a grassland operation. I do subsidize with oats and barley and cull beans that I buy locally uh, at a, a rate of about five cents a pound compared to store-bought grain that's 20 cents a pound. Uh, I, I really encourage uh, young people to get into farming. Uh, you, there was a time when you could uh, get out of high school and have a chainsaw and a pickup truck and you could make some money, but now if you have a rototiller and a pickup truck, uh, and you have the desire to really farm, uh, I, I think you can make it the opportunity, the horizon looks a lot better than what it has been in the past. Uh, but by the same token, you have to um, live a, a rather um, uh, common life. You cannot uh, be off uh, going out to dinner and going to the movies and things. You, you really need to uh, have enjoy... enjoy uh, uh, being a part of your um, is this uh, is this your phone, sir? Uh, a fax machine, perhaps. Uh, uh, there we fine. go. Thank you. Uh, sorry about that. Um, just the uh, the opportunities I think are there, but the knowledge is really within the communities of where you live, um, and I. I really enjoy what I do, and my wife does too. Uh, I do work off the farm about six hours a week. Uh, I enjoy getting away a little bit. I I want to make one comment about the producer and the consumer. I uh, I'm a consumer as well as a producer, but the first three letters you look at both of those. Producers pro, and they're the ones that really know about their product and. Uh, what they're dealing with, and the consumer, it's called a con, C-O-N. And I love to, to talk to the people that I sell things to, but uh, I, don't, I don't think it's smart to, uh, to, to have a market that uh, caters to just what the consumer that often uh, is pretty superficial and what they think they want and need. A lot of, a lot of our products are... Uh, uh, eye appealing, but they're not very tasteful. Uh, a good example of that is uh, probably the the tomatoes that are coming out of Madison now. I tasted some of those uh, about a month ago, and uh, quite honestly, uh, I, if I can find a good uh, Italian-made canned tomato, that's what I eat during the winter time. Uh, I sell vegetables during the summer, but we don't go to farmers markets or. Uh, we just let people come here, and it's it's kind of like a word-of-a-mouth thing, and it's allowed me to grow very slowly um, and not have to borrow money uh, and to uh, 
do something that I just enjoy doing. And thank you for their program, though. I think it's great, and it adds to the knowledge base. Great. And, and um, first of all, um, I know that word of mouth is good. You can tell us who you are and, and what your farm is. <laughs> uh, well, my name's Jim Bunn. I live in Garland. I've lived here for since 1973. Uh, I've had sheep since 1975. I, I have uh, a couple of milk cows, and I have three workhorses, a flock of chickens. We sell eggs every day. Uh, we sell milk. Uh, it's, it's a very small operation, but it's based on our land. Um, uh, we have 65 acres of open land. It's all grassland. I do not plant corn or row crops other than vegetables. Um, and um, the knowledge, again, has just been local. I've, I've been able to talk a lot with uh, the local farmers. And while we're very different, you know, we have, like, industrial farmers all around me, but I'm good friends with them, and uh, uh, I sell hay to them sometimes. And uh, uh, that's what it is. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for your call this morning, Jim. Yeah. Okay, bye. A comment, John? Yeah, I had a comment. Jim is a perfect example of what's in this report in that uh, there's a growing mar- local market, and folks that focus on that local market and the word of mouth locally will be able to sell a lot more uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. The consumers are looking for that, and it gets back to what Nanny said. The consumers are looking for the story. They're looking to connect with that farmer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to come on the farm and sit and talk, you know, mm-hmm. on the front porch type of thing. But they want that local connection. He's a perfect example of what's in this report of what people mm-hmm. are looking for and the opportunity to grow small farm businesses. Now, he also mentioned, and this is in the report as well, and Andy's brought this up, it's not a full-time job. You know, people, we're finding 85 90% of the farms in Maine have to have a second job mm-hmm. or the another family member has to have another mm-hmm. job to help with health insurance, family living expenses. But if you can tap into the resource you have there, it's perfect. He's a perfect example. Great. I think we have time for one more call. We have a caller on the line. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, my name is Nathan Rutenbeck, and I'm actually uh, also a farmer in Brooklyn. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Nanny. And I just wanted to make a comment, actually dovetails into the last comment. Um, Sort of as a young farmer, my wife and I are in our late 20s and have a one-year-old daughter, and I think it's important sort of not to, in discussing all of the potential that is definitely out there for farmers, it is, it's really important not to ignore some of the challenges. Um, healthcare is one that just came up that's really, um, you know, become increasingly important for, for our family, um, you know, trying to run a farm and a diversified farm operation, but still be able to afford healthcare is incredibly difficult. And, um, I also wanted to just add that I think that a lot of the success of um, small farmers and the farming economy in Maine is directly tied um, to sort of the price of food and um, of local farm products, which is, a, which is a difficult nut to crack in a lot of ways because, you know, a lot of people can't necessarily afford the price of food to go up. And I think that that gets into some more sort of institutional um, questions about sort of where the government um, and, and where just society in general places, are, places its value. Uh, just, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit, bit of discussion about that. Show, oh, I can well. <laughs> but, but, but stay tuned because we've got some things in the works. Yeah, thanks, but that was a perfect call, segue, John. and I hope Great. that we Great. do. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. So we are at the end. I'll give each of you like 30 seconds if we can. What's your hope um, for the future in this? Um, but maybe recognizing this, these institutional kinds of things like health care, which is a national problem, not just a state problem. John, what, what's your hope for, for all of this? Well, uh, the uh, demographics are changing in Maine. There's a lot more retirees coming, and there's a lot more people who want to come to move here to, to work the land. I think there's an opportunity for a lot of small farms, um, but we also have to bring other types of jobs here too, mm. more manufacturing as well, mm-hmm. so we can mm-hmm. have dual jobs. Right, with with those healthcare benefits. Carrie, yep. Carrie, what, what what's your hope? There's a lot of different ways to add value. Mm. A lot of different ways to to make your product more appealing to whoever wants to buy it. And I just would encourage people to do a business plan with or without 
uh, state support. There's a lot of resources out there with uh, MOFCA, with Cooperative Extension, and with the Small Business Development Centers, free confidential help available for farmers. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Nanny? Yeah, and my hope <clears throat> is that, um, that, that there will become some increasing awareness in this country of the need to change our cheap food policy that's been in place for so many years, and that really uh, um, would also spill over to other resource industries as well. Mm. And... Um, and and valuing um, all of our resources, including human resources. Mm, thank you. I can't think of a better group of guests for this topic and this show. Thank you so much for being here this morning on Talk of the Towns. I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us on the second Friday at this time for a family radio forum and on the third Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, John Harker of the Maine Department of Agriculture, Food, and Rural Resources. And, John, we didn't get to talk about cranberries. Next time we'll do that. Carrie Sands of Farms for Maine's Future. Uh, Beth Calder was with us by phone from the Food Science Department at the University of Maine and Nanny Kennedy of Sea Colors in Washington, Maine. Thanks to our... In the main blanket? Okay, great. We'll come back to that. Thanks to our guests in the studio. Thanks to you who listened and called in with your great wisdom. Um, Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.